Hello, 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 my dear friend. It's Jay here, your host. So before I start this episode, if you love this podcast, please do me a favor and hit the follow button and share it away. More you share, bigger our reach gets and bigger we get, more guests we can attract. In this episode, I had the absolute honor to interview Dr. Bonnie Wems, counseling psychologist and founder of the private practice Wems and Associate. I'm telling you something. Every time that I listen to Bonnie and talk to Bonnie, now, it has been a few times now, I had an literally epiphany moment, like something in her voice, in her choice of words, or how she simplifies complex processes that happen in our minds, makes it so relatable and understandable that I keep having these breakthrough moments about myself. I know that this episode is an hour of mental care for anyone who will listen to it. And I know that it will give you time and space to reflect on yourself. So I suggest something. Put your headphones on and go for a walk because you need that me time for yourself when you're listening to this podcast. So ready for my awesome guest? Let's hit it. Welcome to the She Is Awesome podcast, the home for women business owners filled with extraordinary stories, giggles, and thoughtful conversations, offering inspiring takeaways for your life and your business. Hey, Bonnie, welcome to the She Is Awesome podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic and even better because I'm doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here. You are joining us from all the way to Manhattan, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah I Is am. it out there? It's a beautiful sunny day, a little brisk, but there's a record of no snow in Manhattan right now. So we haven't had snow in a very, like a long time. So it's kind of nice, actually. <laughs> it's that cold, refreshing air, right? Oh, yeah. I wish I was there. I love New York. Well, welcome here. I'm going to just get into the thick of things and ask you my question, which is about your journey so that everyone knows a little bit more about you. Your journey to therapy and also to entrepreneurship, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, as a therapist, I don't talk about myself a lot. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> makes me a little uncomfortable, but I'm happy to do it. I came to this late in my life. And I have to tell this story. I have to tell my age, which is a funny thing for a woman to sometimes <laughs> not to, but it's all part of the story. So I am 60 and I became a therapist at the age of 50. So it had been a lifelong dream of mine. I knew, I think since the age of like 16, I took a psychology class in high school and it just was like one of those things, you know, when you just feel like, oh, I'm meant to do that. I want to understand that. And it probably was prompted by, I had a, a bit of an interesting childhood with an alcoholic father who was quite traumatized from his own life, as I understand it now. And so it was a tough childhood, an abusive, you know, kind of rage-fueled childhood a lot. And so I think I was looking for answers to try to understand this behavior and understand mm -hmm. my mother's behavior. And I had seven siblings. So I'm second to the youngest out of eight kids. Wow. So a lot of chemistry and stuff going on to try to understand. But as life happens, you know, got a job at a group health insurance company right out of high school, didn't go to university right away. And so it just became this career that I didn't ever intend to have. But, you know, you get promoted, you start making more money, you have kids, marriage, family, bills. And all of a sudden, you know, 30 years gone by. And I still hadn't accomplished my dream. And so finally, we moved to London, England, when I had just managed to scrabble together my undergrad. And then I went off to university in London and finally got my doctorate at the age of 50. And so it was such an exciting moment. I can't even tell you. I don't think I was in my body. It was one of those really a moment when a dream matches reality and you 
you just don't believe it. You know, it was such hard work. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life over childbirth, I'll tell you, it was harder (laughs) than anything I've ever done. And kind of trying to get, you know, to go back to school in your late forties and you don't use your brain that way anymore. And so it was an interesting challenge, but one that I achieved and I love. And so now I think I always feel like there's a hand in the small of my back saying, keep going, do more. There's an urgency to what I do because I didn't get to do it, you know, for Uh a long period of time. So I moved back to the States and now I have a practice in Manhattan and I work virtually and I was working virtually before COVID because I just found it was really convenient for people. Mm. You know, the typical doctor's appointment is two o'clock on a Thursday and you're just supposed to get across town right in the Mm. middle of your work day. And this way, people can book them in from their home. And, you know, I also do evenings and weekends. I try to, my whole thing, we'll get to this, but it's just about, I want people to understand what this can do for them and that it's mm-hmm. not about being broken. It's about, you know, just understanding yourself better so that you can live a better life for yourself. So I love it. And I got to meet people like you through my journey. So it's just an amazing thing. I know, right? It is. Well, first of all, what an inspiration to know that, you know, like the classical societal way of seeing age, women aging, you know, it's like you actually rewritten the whole life at 50 again. Yeah. And it's almost like you're living another life right now. So I'm just in awe of it. And I can only imagine not just the challenge, but how fearful and like frightening it was to jump from something that was established to something completely new. And I would love to touch on that as well. So I just wanted to recognize that and say that you know, like when I hear people going and I I do hear I'm 41 and around me, I do hear a lot of people going, well, you know, we missed the opportunity or, you know, whatever. Shut up. (laughs) No. (laughs) You're right. You're exactly right. It's never, you're never, it's never, never too late. Yeah. If the only thing that's stopping you is your head and what you're telling yourself, you know, come on. It's just not. It, and it is hard. You know, don't forget that it is hard. But man, what if I hadn't, you know? That's a great question, isn't it? That's a great question. When you're probably at the crossroad to ask, like, what if I do? And what if I don't do? It's like we always see the fearful part of the what if I do, but we never think about what if I don't do. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit more about the leap of faith. When did you decide, right, I'm going back to school. I'm going to do this. Like, when did that become a real urge that you had to do it and then you did it? It never left me. You know, it was always there. Even raising two children and having my husband, his career began to get very intense. We traveled a lot. So I was a single parent a lot, not because, you know, he didn't want to be there, but his job just took him all over the place. And so it never left me. Even in those times, I would cobble together time and take one course at night. It was always in the back of my mind. Everything I read, everything I watched, everything I talked about, it just came out of my pores, you know, like some people say they don't know what their passion is. And that's fine. You know, to me, it's like sometimes there are things you need to discover and you need to try things and maybe work out things. For me, I'm, I think, quite lucky that this was something just embedded in me that never left. And so I couldn't, I almost couldn't not do it. Like I I had to, I had to. So I cobbled together courses here and there. I would take night courses when I could. I mean, sometimes sitting up till two in the morning, typing a paper after I finally put the children to bed. Just this force inside of me that said, keep going, keep going. It really honestly never left me. But at one point when my husband and I met in Colorado and then we moved to Boston and in Boston, 
that's where we're really raising the kids. That's when they were, you know, the young ages and driving them to football practice and band practice and all sorts of things all over the place. And I told my husband, when is it possible? Every time we'd have a quiet talk about our future, I'd say, when can I do it? Because I knew I needed to, at some point, just full time, bang out my degree. Mm. And so he knew, and it wasn't a secret or a surprise when I found financially that we could do it, that I said, now, (laughs) can I do it now? And I was, you know, I was ready. The minute we felt like we financially could handle it, I was like, goodbye, resignation, off to school. And, you know, I had to get my undergrad. So there I was 40 something getting my undergrad. I went to this commuter school in Boston, oldest person in the class, right? Sitting front row and center, hand up, eager, asking all the questions. <laughs> I was that nerd. I was that nerd. I was so happy to be there, you know? And these kids around me, you know, 18, 19, 20, and they're just like slumped in their chairs going, oh my God. I even one time in the class, the teacher said, well, if there are no more questions, maybe we'll leave early today. And I said, I have a question. <laughs> Did they hate you? They hated me. Oh, my God. They hated me. Um, who is that lady that can't shut up? So, yeah, I just had a grin on my face. You know, I just loved it. And I love learning anyway. I'm never, ever going to stop learning. If you saw what's all around me, you know, books, journal articles, I'm always always thirsty to try to understand. And so, yeah, I'm one of those fortunate people where there was a fire in my belly for this, probably born from my experiences at a very young age. But, you know, it could have gone another way. You know, none of my siblings have become psychologists. So for some reason, it hit me in a certain way. And I just, I think I was always trying to figure out my parents, to be honest with you. I think there was a big driver in there psychologically down deep inside. There was a sense of trying to figure out my parents and maybe even fix it, you know, which kind of let go of that at some point. Cause then it had to be about me because I mm-hmm. had to, at some point I had to really kick in my own motivation or I wouldn't have finished, you know, it had to be about me. And so I did get there eventually. Well, quite a bit of therapy, I think. <laughs> but that's what I was thinking, I guess. Like, if it was just about you, your parents and fixing yourself, you could have handled it with just going to therapy. You wanted to, you know, like, not only learn it, but then help others as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a different journey. And uh, wow, how lucky we are. So, you know, I always get really curious about this question. And I'm so happy that I found finally a therapist who lives in New York and who lived also in the EU and in, well, back then EU in London. So, you know, like even in the classical like shows, TV shows, etc., like therapy in America as like going to grocery shop, you know, it's like, it's so, it's it's so open, isn't it? Like, especially probably in New York or San Francisco, like a little bit more progressivist areas, like having a therapist and investing in therapy is actually almost like, well, if you have a certain level of income, you must do it, right? Whereas in the UK, and you had a practice in the UK as well, whereas in the UK, it's like, if I say, oh, I have a therapist, I'm like 99.9% sure that people would be like, oh, what's wrong? You know, like, oh, are you okay? Are, are, are you about to commit suicide? Or, you know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you have any, any opinion about this? I do, actually. I actually blame therapists. I blame us. I blame the institution Because if you look at the beginnings of it and the way it's evolved, we've kind of set it up to be this secret thing. You know, we can't talk about it too much. I mean, I am in networking groups. I go to networking events. I never, hardly ever meet another therapist. We don't open our doors and come out there amongst the people. (laughs) You know, there's this kind of reluctance to sharing ourselves and who we are, unless it's in an academic setting or a literary setting or 
and and you meet therapists and you will, you know, people tell me all the time, you're the first therapist I've met that isn't weird. And I'm not calling out all therapists. I'm going to get hate mail, but I love therapists. But there is a tendency to want to keep it as some sort of secret society that only people who go know about it and that, you know, the rest of you forget about it. And that to me has enhanced because when there is a void of understanding, we will make sense of it our own way. You know, Mm. when you don't understand something, when there is no information, we'll make up a story. I mean, that's, (laughs) that's what the tabloids are all about, right? We'll just make up something. So I think what's been made up over the years is a real sense of people think, okay, that's a secret thing. Nobody talks about it. I don't know anybody who's going to one because the people that are going don't talk about it. Mm. So it must be something for really desperately broken people, right? Who are very ill. And, and maybe there was a time when it was, you know, maybe there was a time when when it kind of first was starting out that we were trying to figure out some really major mental illnesses. But you know, the majority of people that come to me now are people like you and me that are just trying to figure out how to live a more fulfilled life. And they understand that something in their thinking and something in their behavior is holding them back, but they don't quite know how to fix it themselves. Mm -hmm. And they've tried different avenues and nothing seems to be working. But they are successful people in wonderful relationships, making lots of money, living wonderful lives. They're not ill. They're not broken. They're just trying to enhance you know, and build up a sense of what their life can look like. And they understand they're holding themselves back in some way, shape or form. That's how I feel anyway. Mm. Yeah. And and I agree totally. And I guess that stigma that you were talking about, it's like therapy equals broken, like couples therapy, like, oh, you're about to divorce, Mm. you know, any kind of like personal therapy, oh, you have a major problem, which then if you have a problem you want to hide because, you know, in society it looks better to be a warrior and have no problems, right? Yes, yes. So, but why do you think that there is that difference between Europe and U.S.? Or is it a perception of mine? And actually in the States it's as taboo as in the U.K.? No, I don't think you're wrong. I think it is more acceptable here. New York, for sure. And I've only lived in Manhattan for a little over three years. Mm. But I do, anywhere I go and somebody asks me what I do, and I tell them, they say, oh, my therapist. That happens a lot to me here in New York. People are quite open about it. Yeah. You know, it's the Woody Allen effect. I get the idea that we're all, (laughs) we got a therapist by our side and that's our our support, which I love, by the way. Other parts of the country that I, you know, because I lived in Colorado where I was born and then Boston, I think it is a little less that way in some of the other states. Um, I've never lived in California. My husband's from California. I think LA is quite therapy accepting. But I also think the American kind of psyche lends itself a little bit more toward being open to it also. Mm-hmm. But the stigma is alive and well here. You know, don't get me wrong. Like, you know, you, you've seen news programs and things where people are shamed for maybe coming forward with some of their mental health. I just read this great article about Michael Phelps, the swimmer, you know, his whole swimming career. He was in agony mentally, but he just persevered because... Everybody told him he was doing a great job, you know, so it certainly exists still where people don't think, I think the biggest thing with people, to be honest with you, is that they think if they admit they're struggling, that then somehow they're going to lose everything, you know? Mm, that's so an I, interesting way of seeing it. Yeah. Yeah. If I admit to this dark shadow that lives inside of me and this fear base of whatever's going on that I don't want to go near then it'll take over and I'll lose everything. When in fact, the opposite happens, you know, the opposite happens when you embrace your shadow, as we call it, then you can merge and become, you know, one with it and understand it and it dissipates. But people have this idea and I did too, before I became a therapist, you know, my own trauma was something I carried around all the time. It impacted me in every relationship I had, but I didn't want to go near it it scared me. It was better to bury it and put on a smiley face and have people compliment me 
when they found out about my past and say, oh, wow, you seem so well adjusted. And I'd smile and nod and say, yes, I am. While inside, not so much, you know, so I did it too. I know we get rewarded. You said it. We Mm. get rewarded for persevering. And I think, you know, the whole just sip up her lip, just keep calm, carry on. Right. Yeah. Get up. The the idea of suck it up. Yeah. Like, I'm so happy that I have a child. She's five years old. And and there are now books, children books that talk about emotions, which I didn't have. I don't know if you had, but I I didn't have. I don't think that my like, okay, I'm from Turkey. Maybe we didn't have it here. They didn't have it either because I, I have access to my husband's old books. So like now we are teaching to our children to recognize emotions, to talk about emotions. And my five-year-old will come and say, mommy, I'm feeling nervous. Mommy, I'm feeling, uh, what did you say the other day? Um, Yes, I am frustrated. And when I asked her, what does it mean frustrated? She was able to explain to me. Like she, I said, what is the difference between angry and frustration? And she was able to, with her own words, you know, put her words on it. And it makes her talk about it, then not live it as intensely. And that's probably lucky for that generation. And hopefully it will help them actually be much stronger than us. Like, you know, the suck it up culture. You know, one thing that you said, Bonnie, that I really love, and of course, I'm going to go back to the talk that I listened from you. So you said, you know, the shadows that we need to almost embrace. And the speech that you gave, the name was Demons and Angels, Angels and Demons. Am I, am I right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Loving your demons. Loving your demons. Mm. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And can we maybe also add a perspective of because we are and she's awesome and most of our listeners are women like what are our demons that we need to love mm. <laughs> good question <laughs> <laughs> wham spotlight on bonnie <laughs> oh my woo okay well if you think about a part of you that you know, the shadow, the demons, the the parts of you that you don't like, you know, when you behave a certain way, or you think a certain way, and you think, oh, I didn't mean to do that, or I wish I wouldn't do that. The behavior that sort of just happens, and then you feel really frustrated or scared, because it's, it's not the way you want to behave, it's not the way you want to think, but it just seems to happen. That just means to me that there are forces at work that aren't really conscious, you haven't brought some things conscious. Because a lot of what's happened to us at very young ages you know, is pre-verbal. Think about, you've had children, like, you know, zero to four, three. I have a three-year-old granddaughter. You can tell she's understanding more and more and more, but still she doesn't have any capability to talk like this, to be able to step outside of herself and observe. She's completely self-absorbed, which is wonderful. So all of that learning that she's doing now is going to be stored in a place that she really won't have access to verbally when she's older. And thankfully, she's being raised by two wonderful, loving parents. My son is one of them, and I I see the, the way in which they support her as just this beautiful thing. But if you imagine that somewhere along in there, there's trauma, and it doesn't have to be, you know, an alcoholic abusive home. That's kind of an extreme. That's me. But, you know, we just have things happen to us, don't we? Things happen where we don't understand. And I'm going to say it again. We make sense of it the best way we know how. Children always blame themselves when something goes wrong. When they don't understand, they blame themselves. And that kind of gets stored in there too. So as a young adult, I had a lot of confusion. My demons were all around this sense of perhaps I'm unlovable. Perhaps I'm not worthy. Perhaps I had such a difficult childhood and my father was abusive because I'm flawed. Something's wrong with me. So this belief gets stored quite deeply back there, right? And you're not consciously saying those words, but your behavior, you know, insecure in relationships, quick to anger, frustrated when things didn't go right for me. This would all show up and I wouldn't know how to manage it because I didn't understand where it was coming from. 
So that's when I'm talking about demons. You know, it could be a teacher that said something really awkward to you. It could be your parents divorced. And even though it was a loving, supportive divorce, divorce is hard on children. So there could be so many things that people are carrying around in their adult minds. And when you say to people and when you start doing the work with the demons, I'm telling you, this stuff rises up pretty quick. You start asking people about times in their lives where they felt, you know, sort of shut down or misunderstood or, and memories will start popping up for people and they'll say, I haven't thought about that in years. And it's not like you're trying to get them to think about bad stuff, but what you're trying to do is get them to acknowledge that they've had experiences that have led them to think a certain way about themselves. And that way that they think about themselves, if it's, you know, negative, that needs to be worked on because we blame ourselves for things that happened when we had no control. You know, we blame mm. ourselves for what's happened to us and our response to it. And then we beat ourselves up for it. Is there anything worse? Are you beating yourself up for things that you had no control over and you had no ability to change. And so then as you get older, that cycle continues and you have to break the cycle. And the only way through, I, as the way I understand it, is through that pain. You got to get through it. You got to understand it. And then you make use of it and it becomes your angel. I'm a sensitive person. I've been called a sensitive person forever. In grade school, all the, oh, Bonnie's just so sensitive. And it was a dig. It was not a compliment, (laughs) you know, quick to cry, quick to get upset, kind of wore my heart on my sleeve. And now my sensitivity is my superpower. I'm a sensitive therapist, yes. But man, does that help me understand someone else's pain? Because I can sit in it very comfortably now. I understand my pain. I understand where it came from. So I can hear other people's pain and be sensitive to that. So you turn these things that you maybe thought were horrible about yourself into something you use and you actually embrace it. And it's, it's a beautiful process to watch in my mind. You know, I love watching people's light bulbs go on when they realize that they're great as they are, that the things they've learned, the wounds they carry, empower them, you know, move them forward, make them strong. And burying that, pretending it didn't happen, you're cutting off your right arm. You know, you're cutting off a whole element of yourself. Mm. Did I go off on a tangent there? <laughs> no, no, no. Actually, I mean, it's the, every time that I talk to you, it's so funny because my brain, like, it also goes, oh, what do I do to Nina, my daughter, that might actually hurt her uh, or make her think that, like, yesterday I told her off because she was doing something silly. And, you know, telling her off is not the thing. But then I, I said to her something that I know I didn't want to say. It was... You know, you always do this. Mm. And then I was like, why the heck am I saying this? She's just five years old. Like how many always she has in her life? You know, like, you know, the girl is changing every three months anyhow. So there is no always in her life as yet. And then I was like, now when you're talking, what is the effect of it on her? Because I was told stuff that, you know, I had to deal with, etc. And, you know, by all the good meaning, well-meaning adults, like I didn't have any traumatic family experience. It was loving, supporting, always well-meaning. They were just too young to be parents, probably that, you know, and they didn't have the tools that we have accessibly to deal with raising another human being. But now I see it that way, but I did grow up with a lot of what you're saying and probably like a lot of human beings have grown up with that. Like, oh, I'm not good enough because she told me always or, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. So, yeah, you have not gone off tangent. I think this is a really important thing to capture here because, you know, I coach women business owners, and there are actually studies as well showing what I'm going to say now is that one of the basically 
barriers in front of women business owners is things like self-critique. They're calling it confidence. I'm not sure if I would talk about confidence, but it's this idea of I'm not good enough for this. And there are like evidence that support. I think it's a, I don't remember which one, but I think it's a Harvard Business School study or something like that is where they show that there is a job application and women who apply to this job application they meet 100% of the criteria and men who apply to this application, they meet 60% of the criteria of the job application. And that is all about like what you think about yourself, right? 100%. So actually what you're saying, I do see, although like we do personal development work on a very surface level through business, not anything deep, I can see that. I lived it with me. So what you're saying is really important in terms of what makes you think that you're not that good and understand that. Mm. And so what is the mechanic of it? Like beside the fact that, okay, things form in the childhood, but also could you maybe give us some understanding of how can we catch ourselves? How can we get out of that cycle? Mm. Are there any quick fixes? I mean, I hate that word, but are there any ways that we can catch ourselves at least? Yeah. Well, and that's a really good way to say it. But can I just back up one second and reassure you about your parenting? Because (laughs) all the studies, all the studies show good enough parenting is what we need. Good enough. Not perfect because you're not perfect. You're going to make mistakes. And good enough falls into the category of where when you do make a mistake, you acknowledge it you think about it, and you apologize. There is this ability for, you know, there's an understanding there because what your daughter's going to experience there is twofold. She's going to experience the first remark that you said that you caught now, and then she's going to experience your apology and your acknowledgement of that remark. So you're breaking that cycle right there, right? That's Mm -hmm. the difference because I mean, I was born in 1962. I love talking about how old I am. It's crazy. I was born in 1962. So I was was raised, you know, really 60s, 70s. And when I see something about the way women, you know, the women's right to vote or the women's, all these things that were happening. And I was a young woman growing up in that. I never even thought anything was wrong with it. You know, I didn't think anything about discrimination against. I just went with what's acceptable Mm -hmm. and, you know, not encouraged to take math, not encouraged to take science. Women aren't good at that. You know, this kind of thing. And you inhabit some of that just without even realizing, you know, you're just like taking it all in as things happen. So just remember that life happens to people and your daughter's going to have a lot of positive and negative experiences. If you raise her with the sense of, the ability to acknowledge her mistakes and learn from them and move on. That's the gravy. That's the wonderfulness of it. So I just wanted to tell you, good enough parenting. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So back to the awareness, you know, the idea of quick fixes, the, I work with people all sorts of ways. I work with some people who want long-term work. You know, they really want somebody that's going to be by their side weekly or quite often through time. I have some really long-term clients. And then I have a lot of people who want to kind of dip in get some pointers, get some tools, as you say, Mm -hmm. and then get on with their life. And I honor that. It's like, who am I to tell you how you're going to live? Like, you know better than I do. I'm just here to try to help guide you through my knowledge. So the number one thing is what you just said. It's about the ability to step aside and look at yourself and say, huh, look at that. And not immediately judge it. See, that's what we do. We step out, especially women, we look at the situation and then we go, oh, I'm so stupid for doing that. Why did I say it? Oh my God, I'm hopeless. I'm never good at this. This cycle of behavioral things that you're not happy about, your demons, and then judging and beating ourselves up for it. So then mm-hmm. you just you just grind yourself into the ground, right? It's amazing to me that, you know, we're we're able to get out of bed someday. So the ability to step aside and look at what you want to work on non-judgmentally. Say, huh, I said that to my daughter. I'm not pleased I said that. What can I do about that? And how can I learn from that? That was a mistake. I acknowledge it. I'm going to watch for that because that's my upbringing coming out of my mouth. And I recognize that. And I don't want to give that to her. 
So it shows up in so many things. It shows up in sports. It shows up in meditation and mindfulness. It shows up in this ability to sort of move aside from your ego and everything that you've got built up in wanting to be the best, stepping aside from that, looking at something objectively and just saying, how can I do better? How can I change that? And if you don't understand, like if you can't grasp it, maybe a few sessions, because my work is to try to get you to kind of bring some of that into your consciousness. And like I said, that pre-verbal stuff, it's stored away way back. And so some of our belief systems have been formed by things that we can't even remember. So you have to sometimes, you know, a little, a little digging is mm-hmm. helpful. But if you are able and willing to look at yourself, you're well suited. You know, you're on your way because that's the first and biggest step to take. So that's it. It's like really that reflection moment. It's setting aside time and headspace to say, right, this didn't go well. What didn't go well? How did I behave? What are the patterns and what can I do to change them? Yeah. Without deciding that you're just, you did this or this happened, therefore it validates my unworthiness. Yeah. Noticing how you want to go there. You want to validate. I always tell people, if we were in a court of law right now and you were trying to prove to me that you were just completely a mess and unworthy, this is the evidence you're bringing to me. Yesterday, I said this to my five-year-old daughter. See, I'm hopeless. That's how it works in our mind. It's evidence. We bring up evidence in our heads to validate our insecurities, validate that deep-rooted belief that says, you don't have it. You're not the one. Maybe she's got it, but you don't have it. I do some workshops on imposter syndrome, and I'm mm-hmm. telling you, wow. We get to some level where people, I ask them, can you remember a time? where this sort of really got stirred up and people can go right there. I was in this room, this person said this to me and I knew, he knew that I was an imposter. And it just grows from there. You know, that's the problem with it is that then it just grows with every event, every experience, you water it, you feed it, you you really kind of birth this demon, the weed. Yeah. The, weed. the demon, yeah, that's that's deep stuff, Bonnie. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. Yeah. It, it's deep, and it so from being a woman in the society that is still not geared up to be equal, it feeds a lot of things, and it makes it even harder, probably, for women because it's really difficult to brush it off if it's so deeply seated in you. And from a business owner perspective as well, I mean, as business owners, like we're going to fall and we're going to get rejection and we're going to make mistakes like a hundred million times. Like, you know, it's going to be wrong, 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 wrong. Oh, right. Okay. That was right. And I guess... You know, we keep hearing this on social media everywhere, like consistency, be persistent, be consistent, be perseverant and be resilient. These are now became to me, it's like all like fluff words. And I just want to understand now the mechanics, right? Like why a person is accepted or can be more resilient than other. And what is the mechanic behind so that we can actually somehow copy paste or adapt it to our lives? And this is what you're saying. What you're saying is the root of it, because the seeded thoughts that come from wherever they come from, unless you deal with them or you at least acknowledge them, it's really difficult to become resilient because every negative experience will feed that thought and then that thought will grow bigger. Mm, Exactly. And How can you become resilient? So funny, I'm working on a talk on resilience right now. Very, very well-timed question. And so it's, you know, it's more of the same there. But if you think about it, if you've been feeding this demon with your negative self-talk, or in my case, you know, let's say 50 years, you're peripherally aware of it, but you haven't done any work to really try to change it. And then you start working on it and people say, went to therapy for a couple of weeks or a month, nothing changed. 
unfortunately, there's 50 years of experience in that demon where you've been feeding it. And now for two months, you started to try something new. You started to try to catch when you said something very negative about yourself. You try to catch these things. And when you catch them, you give it an alternative narrative. You come back with something positive or you come back with something that's uh, not beating yourself up and praising. And they try it for a little while, but it's really uncomfortable, right? It's very unfamiliar territory. So the brain says, oh, this doesn't feel good. Go back to what's familiar. Go back to your comfort zone. And even though your comfort zone is ugly and full of negativity, it's all you know. And so it's like that really ugly sweater you only wear in your house that has holes in it. And people say, you can't wear that thing in public because you wear it because it's so comfortable, but it smells and it's got holes and it's one sleeve is all whatever, but it's familiar. You get a new sweater. It doesn't fit quite right. I'm not sure who I am in this. It's just uncomfortable, unfamiliar. And then they give up and then they blame the therapist and they say, I tried, didn't work. You talk to yourself all day long. You have to be vigilant with this stuff. Every time you feel it, you try to catch it every single time. You're not going to, you're going to, you know, they're going to fail because there's too many thoughts happening, but that's the way you got to go at this stuff. The consistency is in the self-care and the self-noticing, you know? So I'll tell you two days ago, and I, you know, I'm a therapist. I talk about this stuff all day long, every day. I've been in therapy myself and my husband and I encounter a rude waiter at a restaurant, I say, I wonder what we did wrong to make him angry. Simultaneously, my husband says, that guy must be having a bad day, right? There it is. There it is. Self-blame, the ability to look at the situation and say, I don't know what's going on, but he must be. It was, and we started laughing because it was so obvious in the way in which my go-to move is to blame myself. So even after all my work. And I do feel that most of the time I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in the flow and I'm doing it, but it shows up at awkward times when I let my guard down, that old little demon says, "Mm, Hello, I'm not dead. (laughs) I'm still here. And you have to be vigilant with it and have a sense of humor, acknowledge that it's there and then say, yeah, well, of course, of course. Of course I said it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's so interesting because um, I had a very similar situation with my husband. So my probably cultural upbringing as well, this Eastern, more Eastern, Middle Eastern upbringing is like you, you got to ask for permission. You got to, you know, you got to make sure that everybody feels okay. And you, it's really about respect, showing respect to this, to showing respect to that. Even our language is really uh, constructed around respect. Like we have to give a formal you to our elder or a new person that you meet or a client, you know, you. so it's all around that kind of like authority that language builds between you and a person that you will consider as being superior to you mm-hmm. or should consider. So in that sense, uh, we were talking about, and my husband is a Brit and he comes from sales background. So we were talking and we were talking about, I don't know, either one of my client or one of his team person and we're saying but what I said well why don't they when they call for the sales I said why don't they just say oh is it a good time to talk and he looked at like I am the trainer I am the you know I am the coach I'm trainer I do give sales training to many 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 big corporates as well so I am the like I do this shit and he goes like why would they do that like what do you mean I mean, why would they give the ticket to, you know, close the door from the beginning? You present yourself and you go right in the discussion. And if the person is not available, they will tell you they're not available. And like, it was so against me, but like he had a point and, and he can sell your own panties to you. You know, like he's that good at sales. So, and I was like, sure. Yeah. Like. It's so not me, but yeah. And Mm. that is it. It's like when I call someone, especially if it's going to be a client, I put an authority 
level yeah. and my head, which is all in me from culturally, from family or whatever. And for him, we are equal. I'm calling to do business. You know, if he's not interested, he'll tell me he's not interested, but I don't have time to do all that like, you know, schmoozing for yeah. him is that. And that's exactly what you're saying. And it's so interesting to see it from actually another perspective as well. Yeah. 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 It shows up in everything, right? Yeah. It shows up everything and everywhere. And, you know, that's right there. You're able to say, I see exactly where that came from. Now you get to do with that whatever you feel like doing. You keep it, you change it, you notice it, whatever you want. But it's that noticing. And I'll tell you, your openness to him to say, what do you think? See, this is what's missing now. We all have our beliefs and we're stuck in them, you know? Mm -hmm. So you say something contrary, I'm just going to disagree and we're never going to get anywhere. But you said you know, why don't you do this? And he's like, I wouldn't do that because of this reason. And you go, huh, look at that. You may still continue to do it and that's fine, but it's the ability to understand someone else. At the same time, you're looking at yourself. It's that openness, the vulnerability that Brene Brown talks about. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, if I ever get to meet that woman, I just, the brilliance of what her research and her work mm -hmm. is. I don't think people quite realize because it's all evidence-based. She does the work. She doesn't just spout ideas. Nah, she does yeah. work. Yeah. And her research shows, research shows that when you are vulnerable and you're in tune with that and you're able to be open to what the possibilities are, not only are you learning, but you're able to step into your own stuff in a way that says, huh, look at that. Now I see. In your example, you got that, I'm sure, in part from your cultural upbringing. That wasn't something you purposely got. It happened to you because it was in your environment, just like my environment, just like, and everybody's had different environments. So we're all coming to, you know, I said sometimes it's amazing we can all fit in a room because we've all got our baggage, right? My baggage is coming in the room with me. I just want to be aware of my baggage. You know, that's what it is. I don't want my baggage to control me anymore. I don't want to feel as if I can't make decisions based on things other than coming from a fear place. You know, if it's coming from fear, not going to work. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is the epiphany moment for me right now. It's like I always say this for coaching and it's the same. It's choice. It gives you choice. You can say, I want that and keep doing it. No, I want to show extreme respect and I show it this way and I want to recognize authority, da, da, da. And I can be like this and it's choice, but it's therapy or creating some form of self-awareness in that way and, and being open to self-awareness gives us choice to be controlled or not, basically, by something that we hadn't choose up front. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're, you're you're just yes, you give me goosebumps because it's what I always say to people. So what are you going to choose? Mm. And people are like, I'm not choosing. It's just happening to me. But that's see, that's the awareness. The awareness begins to help you understand that you are choosing. You're just not aware you're choosing. So as soon as you can start being aware that you're choosing now, you get to choose how you greet people. You get to choose. Yeah. You don't just do it unconsciously anymore. Just give somebody else your authority because there's going to be times where you don't want to do that. You know, that's not safe for you. And so now in that choice, you get to do that. You get to say, I choose when I greet people that way. I choose. And so that's once again, that's making friends with your demons. Your, I wouldn't call you know, that a demon necessarily, but it is certainly a way of thinking about things, of thing that's come from your upbringing. Now it's in your awareness and you get to choose and use it when you want as a tool that'll work for you best, not just unconsciously, you know? Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's it. Well, yeah. Bono, we're coming towards the end of our discussion. And I think this was like the epiphany of the discussion. It's like everything that you do, leads people to the power of choice, which for me is the biggest gift that you can give people. So that is an amazing 
job in itself. Tell me a little bit for people who would want to contact you. I, I'm going to put all your details in the show notes as usual, but anything that you would want to say, because I do remember that you have me a 30 second chemistry call kind of thing. Is that right? Am I making it up? I have a 30 minute free consultation. Yeah. 30 yeah. minutes, not 30 seconds. <laughs> yes. 30, 30 seconds. Top chrono. <laughs> I can fix you in 30 seconds. No, 30 minutes. And I do that twofold. I want people to meet me. This is a weird relationship. You know, when we start therapy together, I always tell them, this is a weird thing, isn't it? So I want people to meet me, you know, mm -hmm. talk to me, tell me what you want to ask me anything. I always just transparent, like, what do you want to know? And then I talk about, you know, sort of this stuff, like we're talking try to help people see that it's not going to be maybe some, because everybody has some TV therapist in their mind if they haven't had therapy. You know, they've got some, maybe from the Sopranos or, you know, they've got some idea of what a therapist is. And it's usually pretty wrong because it's not depicted very accurately in the world. So the 30 minutes, I think, is a chance for them to ask questions, but also for them to see and meet how I deal with things and, and just see if it's a good fit. Mm -hmm. Another big reason that therapy doesn't work for people is it's not a good fit. You know, somehow mm -hmm. you're going to tell me things that maybe sometimes you haven't ever told anyone. Mm -hmm. You have to trust me. Mm -hmm. And if for some reason you take a look at this face and you go, mm -mm, she's not trustworthy, <laughs> even though I am, I swear to God, I am. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. We should know that up front so that you can find the person that is really going to help you move forward in your life. That's my goal. If it's not me, find somebody that is. And so, yeah, the 30 minute consultation, I think is a great chance for people to just, you know, try it out, kick the mm. tires, so to speak. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. So guys, whoever is listening on the show notes, you're going to see details and she's offering 30 minutes consultation for free. Take the dip and try it out. I've been in conversations with Bonnie in the last few weeks and just talking to her has been revolutionary for myself. So definitely <laughs> do that. Now I'm going to finish with my signature question. I don't know if you've heard it before or not, but the name of the show is She's Awesome. The reason for it is I want my guests, myself and every other women in the planet accept and embrace and promote their awesomeness and greatness. So my question to you, Bonnie, is why are you awesome? <laughs> I love that. And the little girl inside of me is going, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, why am I awesome? I think I, I know I'm awesome. There we go. I'll, I'm getting into it. I know I'm awesome because I care deeply about other people. And I don't just care. I live it. It's just in my bones now. And so through empathy and compassion, I hope to spread the word of helping people discover their awesomeness, just like this podcast, you know, through my caring which I think is a pretty awesome thing to be a caring person, you know, somebody that really legitimately wants to help. So yeah, I'm awesome because I care. I think that is an extremely awesome quality skill in our world. So yes, Bonnie, you are awesome. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> to our podcast sharing your wisdom and digging deep and sharing very openly also your experience with us. I'm sure people will take a lot out of this a little chat of ours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, my friend, thank you for listening to this She Is Awesome podcast. If you want to share your extraordinary story and dare to inspire others, send an email to hello at academyweed.com. You can find the email address in the show notes. Well, let's meet here again next week. Take care. Bye now.